friends, this is Margaret Ernst recording from the place now called Nashville, Tennessee, on the ancestral lands of the Eastern Cherokee. I'm a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice Nashville, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everyone, but it's geared towards white people who draw from Christian traditions, white people like me who are working to build our resistance muscles, or people working in white communities to boldly, strategically, and prophetically overturn white supremacy. I'm proud to have been a part of the Word is Resistance for almost two years now. I was honored when Reverend Ann reached out to me around this time in 2017 to ask me to contribute an expert from a, excerpt from a sermon And since then, I've been a regular contributor, which has given me a chance to sharpen my lens on how I read the Bible and on what whiteness, white supremacy, empire, and movement for racial justice mean theologically and spiritually, and what to do about it. It's also been a joy to learn from the other contributors, Anne, Nicola, Will, John, Sarah, and folks who have contributed in the past, like Alan, Haven, Blythe, Vahisha, and the folks from the Recipient's devotional series. As we've passed the milestone of making 100 episodes, our podcast team has been reflecting on what this project has meant to us. One of the things Anne asked us to do was to choose our top three favorite episodes. It was hard to choose three, but I was remembering back on some of the episodes that really shifted something in my understanding or moved my spirit to action. I remembered especially Anne's seventh episode about Romans and the wages of whiteness which really helped me embrace Paul in a new way and shaped my concept of grace. I remembered Nicola's episode 86 on baptism as a way of resisting white supremacy, and Blythe's deeply powerful story about the expectations of whiteness in the community she loves and she came from in episode 16. There was also Alan's episode called We're All Going to Die, which I think wins the award for best title which he talks about whiteness about as voiding death. And this has really shaped how I look at the underlying spiritual problem of white supremacy. What kinds of feelings, spiritual, psychological, and existential states are at play that white supremacy provides a dangerous false answer to? What are alternative answers, answers that are liberatory and collective, not supremacist? You'll hear this theme come up again in my podcast for today on the story of Thomas. I know I've really grown over the course of this project in these past two years, theologically and spiritually and personally, and I hope that, like me, you've experienced listening to this podcast not just as an intellectual exercise, but as an immersion in a worldview and biblical lens that, as Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, helps you pray with your feet. I pray it helps you to deepen and sharpen and refine the ways you're showing up against white supremacy and for liberation every day. We'd love to know more about who is listening and what you think. What do you appreciate? What do you want more of, less of? What's your vision for how we can cultivate more community among our listeners? To celebrate our 100th episode, which was for April 14th, we've created a listener survey where you can share your thoughts and stories. So go to http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash TWIR 100 survey. That link is in the transcript as well. 
and take a few minutes to let us know what you think. You can also always help communicate with us by posting on our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. We value your, value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. I'm grateful to Anne for her stewardship of this space and to our sound editors, especially Max Pearl, who has been doing a ton of editing, including for this episode. Thank you, Max. The music that you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is called No Enemies, and they're a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Where I live, things are starting to get much warmer after a quite rainy and even cold early spring. It's that kind of temperature that is a foreshadowing of long summer nights. It's painfully delightful, with the new warming of the ground still feeling ripe and lush and like a gift. This week was Earth Day, which I'll always be reminded of by my sister, who's a wildlife guide in the western part of this country. And in the Christian calendar, this Sunday is the second Sunday of Easter. The season of Easter actually continues from now until Pentecost, a full 50 days ahead of Easter. So Easter is really just beginning, even though Easter Sunday has passed. That means throughout these 50 days of Easter tide, we have plenty of time to discern and challenge ourselves into the question of what it means to live as Easter people. We should continue to remember the still fresh pain of crucifixion. We should be continuing to raise up praise for the wildness of the empty tomb. We should continue to ask ourselves, what does it all really mean? And then to try to answer with how we live. In my contribution to the Easter episode, I talked about the concept of Christus Victor. That's the Christian theological idea from medieval Europe that says that Christ's resurrection is a sign of Jesus winning the battle over sin and death for good. And I talked about contradictions in that idea of victory over structures of oppression, but I also was feeling pretty good about it. That idea felt helpful. It felt hopeful. But truth be told, a week after Easter, I'm not so sure. I find myself asking, with Easter festivities of Sunday behind me, living into the week after, if Jesus has won the battle, then why is the world so royally effed up? If Christ is risen, why are there paramilitary groups approaching people on the border? If Christ is risen, why is there still no justice for Tamir Rice? If Christ is risen, why are people killing black trans women? And if Christ is risen, why did over 250 people die in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday in an act of violence that was made in retribution for the white nationalist attack on mosques in New Zealand? 
If I was one of the disciples in the Acts text for this week, when Peter and a small crew of Jesus' followers are questioned about the work they do in his name, I would have been wondering silently, if Jesus is risen, why do Pilate and the high priests still have power and authority over my life? If Jesus is risen, why does Rome still have the power to crucify? Where are the signs of resurrection? In this week after Easter, I feel like Thomas in the story from John. I don't believe Christ is risen. After the hallelujahs are finished and the church signs have been changed saying that Christ is not dead, and after the candy-filled eggs are found and the pastors take Monday off, here we are in the week after. When the resurrection can feel all just like a good story, a child's tale a spiritual bypass, a false hope, a lie. Don't you remember his wounds? How real they were? How brutal his death was? The stinging degradation? Don't you remember the crowds shouting, crucify him? It all like a blinding nightmare. Don't you remember how they said the breath went out of his body and how he slowly died by asphyxiation. Don't you remember how he couldn't breathe? Like children born with asthma in areas that are overpolluted can't breathe. How he couldn't breathe like people dying of COPD from stress and trauma and poor health care can't breathe. Don't you remember how he couldn't breathe like Eric Garner couldn't breathe? Don't you remember? Didn't you see? Weren't you paying attention? There's a lot of good reasons for doubt. So let's see what this text from John has to tell us. Here's John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again at the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, 
my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written about in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. doubt about Jesus' resurrection in the wake of such tragedy and trauma is completely relatable. It's completely human. In a world dominated by greed and violence, of course we doubt the reality of resurrection. So I want to talk to you about two different kinds of doubt, or perhaps two different places that doubt can take us. Doubt comes with being human. Doubt comes with paying attention. Doubt can give us a healthy skepticism, a vigilance, an awareness of the reality of suffering and what we're up against. But doubt can also lead us to toxic places. I'll call that kind of doubt bad faith. This idea of bad faith came from one of my favorite conversation partners, Leonard Curry. Leonard is a brilliant ethicist and theologian, an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and he focuses on the relationship between affect, anti-blackness, and spirit. He's a wonderful human. Leonard and I were talking about Christus Victor, and he shared with me about how he understands resurrection. He's drawn this from H. Richard Niebuhr and other sources. You see, Leonard explained to me that Niebuhr interprets the resurrection as God's confirmation that God is who God said God was. And that means, Leonard said, that Christian faith is a faith which turns on trust in God and on living a life which results from that trust. Alluding to a concept that he's also seen at play in a book by Lewis Gordon, Leonard then said, if Christian faith is about trusting God, that means whiteness is bad faith. What does that mean? In other words, whiteness is fundamentally anti-Christian and is an idolatry because it means we place our trust in something other than God to carry us through, to carry us over and around pain and suffering. We rely on the domination of whiteness and the resources it provides us at the cost and at the lives of people of color. Does that feel true to you? Can you think of ways that you have relied on whiteness to get you out of a situation in a way that wouldn't be available to people of color? Have you relied on whiteness to get ahead in ways that are conscious or unconscious, to preserve your position or power or resources? Last April, I had a low-level car crash right around the corner from my house. It was my fault. Even though, yes, the visibility in the intersection was bad, it really was my fault. 
I was distracted and I wasn't paying attention. It was really dumb. Thank goodness no one was hurt. Both cars were impacted and the woman who I hit wasn't that upset with me. I called the police to report the accident, even though I felt conflicted about that. When the officer came, he asked me what happened and I told him that I didn't see the other car, that it was my fault. He listened and he wrote up a report and he said, well, you look like an upstanding citizen. We'll just leave this here. Whiteness saved me. Whiteness saves. Whiteness saves people who are white like me every day. It makes us seem innocent. It puts resources in our direction. It makes life easier. Of course, that does not mean that you don't suffer if you're white. It doesn't mean that white privilege and poverty don't exist or that white privilege and sexism don't coexist. But no one can deny whiteness saves. But what kind of salvation does it offer? In Nashville, where I live, black and brown drivers are pulled over at three times the rate of white drivers. I've never, never, ever been pulled over in Nashville. Even though I constantly make driving mistakes because I'm spacey and not paying attention. I've never been pulled over in Nashville because the police aren't occupying my neighborhood. They aren't lurking on every street corner like they are in neighborhoods that are black and brown and immigrant. My under-policing under as a white woman is built on the over-policing of people of color. Now, as prison abolitionists have told us, this is not a zero-sum game where the solution is to police and incarcerate all people at equal rates. No, the solution is a world without prisons and police. This brings me back to whiteness as bad faith. White supremacy tells us that such a world is not possible. White supremacy tells me that I need privilege and domination in order to be safe, in order to get a pass from the police. That safety and love is something that I get at other people's expense because it believes that there's not enough to go around. White supremacy is doubt that God is trustworthy. You might say, for Christian folk, white supremacy is doubt that Jesus saves. Bad faith is the kind of doubt and non-trusting that whiteness exploits in order to offer us a false antidote, a dangerous answer to inevitable human doubt, and it makes that doubt toxic. The Greek word for belief throughout the New Testament is pistis, and it's more fully translated as the idea of trusting in God. And that's why the antidote to toxic doubt is not belief calcified and made stale in doctrine, but trust. Trust not in whiteness or in maleness or in straightness or in having citizenship or any other construction of identity but trust in God. Trust in the creator of the universe and the creator of all things who made us good and who has shown God's self time and time again to be on the side of the hurting and the forgotten, to be on the side of nurture and collective well-being. 
That's why I want to say that trust in God is something that holds space for our doubts. We don't have to let toxic doubts rule us. When doubt doesn't lead us to bad faith, we can trust God in a way that invites our doubts and our fears to sit in our doorstep. And with curiosity, we can bring them a cup of iced tea and ask, what's up? Why are we here? Easter is not just about spring, friends. It's about human cruelty and systems of destruction being declared powerless by God. In other words, it's the most impossible thing to believe in the world. But what if we don't trust in resurrection? What if we don't believe God is powerful enough or trustworthy enough to accompany us in the path to collective freedom? For me, in this text, Thomas shows up with healthy human doubt in the first part of the story, when in the day after the story of Jesus rising, he's got some questions. But when a week later, when he's heard the testimonies of many people in his community, and when eventually Jesus is standing right in front of him, and he still must be convinced, it reminds me of times I've seen white people or organizations or churches say, I won't get involved with this justice work until I see an outcome, or I want proof of this organization's impact before I give to them. I'll be the first to confess that I've been that person. In the winter after Donald Trump was elected, I remember I was at a Christmas dinner party organized by some friends where the host asked us all to bring some cash to contribute to a local group doing work against racism. When we collected the money, she led us in a conversation where together we decided where to send the collective funds. We were choosing between a Black-led group that was doing work around police brutality and another that was an immigrant justice group fighting deportations and anti-immigrant policy. We wanted to give the money to just one organization, I guess, because we thought that making a larger contribution would be good. I weighed in and I said, with a lot of really inappropriate all-knowingness and authority that from my perspective, one of the organizations didn't have a lot of clear campaign goals right now, whereas the other one had a clear plan about how they were fighting back. So I thought our money would be better used there. I must have been convincing because when we voted, most people settled on the organization that I recommended. Well, it turns out that the group I told everyone didn't have a clear plan would be the organization that would lead some of the most powerful fights in racial justice in Nashville in the years to come. But I didn't have an imagination framework at that time about how that could be possible. I needed proof. Telling this story brings a really ugly feeling to my belly. It was only over a hundred or so dollars, but I can just see how much this harsh judgment and limited imagination showed up in me how whiteness showed up in me on that day and how it does on other days. I can also see the 
painful either-or thinking, which Tema Okun talks about in her writing on white supremacy culture. We white people are good at rationalizing with our minds in ways that squeeze life out of things. We need to learn what it means to trust and to know in different ways, to know with our hearts. People of color have not had the luxury of this kind of doubt, doubt that is seeded with cynicism, judgment, and criticism. Enslaved black people would not have been able to emancipate themselves from slavery if they had said they needed to see proof of a world without slavery or to see the full campaign plan with clear outcomes and deliverables. Ida B. Wells would not have been able to wage campaigns against lynching if she needed proof that people would listen. Indigenous people would not have survived generations of genocidal destruction if they needed proof it was plausible. Because again, like resurrection, oppression works so that liberation never seems plausible. People of color throughout history on this continent have trusted God and spirit and the ancestors are with them. And that the way things are were not the way things had to be. And that the chains of evil in the universe can be cracked and broken open. But whiteness is opposed to the radical hope of the empty tomb. Whiteness finds it much easier to believe that the tomb is closed and Jesus is not coming back, so we better just adjust to reality and be practical and stop abolitionist dreaming and tone down our messaging and appeal to the middle. So again, I ask you, what's the cost of saying, as white people, that we don't believe another world is possible? What's remarkable about this story is that Jesus offers Thomas the grace of touching him and giving him proof. He says, reach out and put your hand in my side. He offers him tangible evidence that God raised him from the dead. If we are doubting, if we look and pay attention, God offers tangible evidence to us that resurrection is possible too. There are so many examples around us from movements for justice, from individual healing of abuse from harm. I bet you've got lots of stories about resurrection. That's why I'm fascinated with the verses in Hebrews 11.1 1 that says, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Other translations say faith is the substance of things not seen or the assurance of things hoped for but not seen. Resurrection does not tell the future. Resurrection tells us that God is trustworthy. Resurrection shows us that a future is possible. And that is a radical thing. That is a radical thing when climate catastrophes are moving in on us, and when scientists say there's no turning back the clock on global warming. 
that is a radical thing when policy and violence have continued to try to exterminate black people and indigenous people. My friend and colleague, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, has a quote on her social media bio that says, there are black people in the future. It's tragic to have to say it, but that is a radical and visionary statement. I'm thinking about the video that came out recently featuring a letter from the future from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about life after the Green New Deal. This kind of dreaming a future against all the evidence to the contrary and all the cynical nose and toxic doubt is the stuff of Easter. Being Easter people is about being people of possibility. so much for listening today. Don't forget about the listener survey, which we'd really love for you to fill out so we can know more about you and the resources that you need to fight racism in your community and your church and your struggles. That link again is bit.ly slash TWIR 100 survey. I have one exercise and one action for you today. The first is to try on trust. When you feel yourself this week or over the next few weeks feeling toxic doubts creep up to limit your imagination about what's possible, try on trust. Try on trusting God. Try on remembering resurrection and use that opportunity to sit your doubts down for tea, asking them what they can teach you. And then let your imagination stretch to what might be beyond your current framework for what is real. Let yourself savor this. Savor the dream and the imagination. Long for it with your whole being. Feel the desire rushing up in you and feel the urgency of the not yet and the could be. And then maybe journal or make art or sing about what that feels like. My action for you is to to participate in the Black Mamas bailout. The Black Mamas bailout is the result of Black-led organizing, and near me, the specifically Southern-led organizing through Southerners on New Ground and other amazing groups across the country. The bailout is connected to a larger campaign and struggle to end cash bail and pre-trial detention, a practice which leads to 70% of people in jail before they're even convicted of anything being stuck behind bars because they don't have the resources to pay bail. It's a messed up system that needs to stop. And that's what Song and others are working to end. But in the meantime, they're also living out the already but not yet. They're working to bail people out right now. And if that's not Easter work, I don't know what is. If there's a Black Mama's bailout happening near you, Get involved with fundraising. In my community, some friends are throwing a party for a fundraiser. There's lots of creative ways to bring resources together. And if there's not one near you, contribute to another city or spread the word to people in your networks. You can find out more on Song's website, 
and a link to the National Bailout website in the transcript, along with credits and copyright information for this podcast. Till next time, I'm Margaret Ernst. May you, friends, be counted among those who have not witnessed firsthand and yet have come to believe. May we be counted among those who Jesus says in this story are blessed. May we be counted among the ancestors who dreamed freedom dreams and made a way towards them. May we be counted among those today who are setting us up for worlds we cannot yet fathom, worlds without prisons, without ice, without sexual violence, without white supremacy, a world where our planet is cared for, a world where everyone is sustained and fed. May it be so.